expression That's how I express myself If it comes from the heart You can never go wrong If it comes from the heart You can never go wrong Oh no Oh no You're listening to High January by Marker Starling. This is A Thousand Songs, Episode 3. Uh, welcome to the 1000 Songs podcast. My name is Jim Shedden, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Alan Zweig and Rick Campbell, uh, and our technical producer, Lisa Santonato, and our special guest today, Kurt Swinghammer. Thank you for all being here. Today we're going to listen to The Skies in Love With You, a song by Burt Backrack and Hal David, and the original recording by Herb Albert and the Tijuana Brass. And so let's just go to the song first, and then we'll, we'll discuss it. You see this guy, this guy's in love with you. Yes, I'm in love Who looks at you the way I do When you smile I can tell we know each other very well How can I show you I'm glad got to know you cause I've heard some talk They say you think I'm fine Yes, I'm in love And what I'd do to make you mine Tell me now Is it story behind the song that Herb Alpert, Herb Alpert went to him and said, you got any songs? And he sort of looked around, Backrack looked around, he said, oh, yeah, well, maybe this would be a good one for you. And, it was and like, he asked, it did had he been want done. one to sing? He thought he was good. I know, I don't think he was thinking about singing it. At the, he was just going, do you have a song? But Does anybody think it would have been better if he had a song? My father. <laughs> 
I forgot to invite him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 when, uh, uh, when I first posted on this in the original Facebook 1000 Songs group that kind of inspired this podcast, um, I felt it was one of those songs that was the best song in the world, which I don't. It's not like I have a best song in the world. Like I did a thousand songs, not one song, right? Mm -hmm. But there's a number of them. When I'm listening to them, I can't really imagine liking anything better. And I mean this specific recording. So strangely, yeah, no, I can't. I actually, I, I have a hard time imagining him not singing it, even though it's unusual that he sang it. You know? Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, I saw the documentary about him. And it was very charming, like I have to say, as much as I enjoyed the Tijuana Brass, I never really took him seriously mm. as a trumpet player or a musician. But when in the documentary, he's actually, he basically narrates that he's still alive. He tells a story. He's very charming. Somehow I came away thinking he was more, more of a musician or something than I thought he was. And also, I always forget that he established A&M and which is so many records that I love, and you know, and also mm -hmm. the Carpenters. But I don't know if I, you know, there are many other versions that, you know, you know that I always have this fascination. Why some songs have been covered a thousand times? Like, mm -hmm. what is it? Like mm -hmm. the what we started with this podcast, window, uh, windmills of my mind. Why, why that song? Or even, you know, I used to have hundreds of versions of MacArthur's Park. Like, why? Why was this guy in love so popular? Well, one, th one thing about that, the covers, in those days, there were regional playlists happening in radio that weren't necessarily national, right? That, right. That's what it came down to in the, what, the 80s when all the playlists become, became homogenized. But in the 60s, different cities would be playing different towns so, or being different tracks. So you could the same song could be a hit by different artists right. in many different places in the world. Mm. Mm. Yeah, but I have a question for Kurt, a very a musical question, but I put on my phone a list of background songs. I mean, what happened with me was one somebody played I had maybe this Ed Ames record, Ed Ames sings background, and he did Nikki. I was like, mm. never heard that song. I was like, oh my God. Love and then it was yeah. all these background songs that I hadn't really heard. Nikki, House is Not a Home. Are You There with Another Boy, Like a Girl Instead of Me? Like, yeah, House is Not a Home and um, etc. That I went crazy on background for years and years. Actually, I brought a show and tell. I'll dig for it later. But, so, I know that there's something that he does musically that I love, and that is very much his own thing that you could almost, I bet that a musician could even map out for me, like he comes to that note and then he goes up, or something like that. But I don't hear that in This Guy's In Love. I only hear it in the chorus. The verse, I, you know, I could hear a song, paper mache, or something like that and go, mm. Is that a, you know, even that song, Something Big, you know, that, like, I could hear that and go, oh, that sounds like Backrack, but This Guy's in Love, the verse, doesn't sound like Backrack to me. So first of all, I'm asking you, musically, does that 
opinion mean anything. Do you hear what I'm saying? Yeah, I think it's a straighter song than a lot of his stuff. And uh, there's, a, like, he's repeating one note, you know, for the verse four times. The second, the third line of the verse is exactly the same. Then the chorus is exactly the same. So, you know, the bop, bop, boop, bop, you know, it's like he, he's never done that before, right? And it's, he's known for these melodic leaps where you're not just kind of walking up and down a scale, but you're, you know, what's it all about, Elfie? You know, that's a yeah. leap. And that's kind of one of his signatures. So it gives the a melody a, a different type of, type of contour, and, uh, and it's more challenging to sing, which I think why, you know, Elbert uh, got onto that song. Or it, yeah. Yeah, because like it's, it's fairly easy to sing. Um, whereas a lot of his stuff is super challenging, right? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, for this thing, I thought of of, of choosing the song that uh, Jobim wrote, the one note samba, which you know it's kind of a, a bit of a tired. We've heard it too many times, but uh, you know, Bacharach silked that that guy's stuff up, right? And he was he's gigging in Brazil and stuff with Marlena Dietrich, so he knew that material well. And then, it, it, you know, Jobim blew up in the States in the early 60s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the, the one-note samba thing seems to, might be something that Bacharach was inspired by, to be a minimalist with the melody, you know, right. as opposed to his normal thing. Oh, well, I mean, this was, um, this was not, like, I, I only took this song seriously because my friend Scott, loved it so much I was like really that's my least favorite back rack song so then I listened to it more but still to me it feels like very outside like oh another example for me is like Tony Bennett singing make it easy on yourself like that kills me and and this this guy's in love just feels kind of I hate to say this to somebody who said it's the best song in the world <laughs> but but it to me it's it's uh, for a backrack song, a little too. I don't know. I, well, I, I, monotonal, like he's saying. Well, I love this song, but I, I find that an interesting point about him because when I first heard Love's Little Red Book, I was listening deliberately because I was such a backrack fanatic when I was like in my teens, or, or before, even before my teens. Uh, so I was listening for that the, the part of Little Red Book where I go, oh, there he is, because it, it's so off the wall from anything mm-hmm. I had heard at that point. And there is there is a little moment in it, some sort of, uh, I don't know whether it's a, a harmonic thing or a, a change, because I haven't heard it in a while, where I will, ah, there he is, there's Bert Backrack, you know? But I mean, in this song, I think the back, Backrack is present in the arrangement of it, in the string arrangement in particular, the piano and strings, especially when, when he's singing, I need your love, and then there's that swell of ba-da-da-ba-ba-da. Yeah. That is, I, that, to me, that's pure, Bert, you know? That's when I hear it. Um, I listened to the, <laughs> the uh, Jim sent us a Spotify list of it, and I actually listened to as much as I could of it today as I was kind of going, okay, who's got the, who's handling this the best? Because it is essentially just one note 
You know who was my favorite? Who's? Julio Iglesias. Really? <laughs> well, that was the first one where I was like, who is this? The the one I turned it off was, um, you know, the Supremes and the Temptations because they were like, I was like, what's she going to do in this song? And A little too showy for the song. You know, and then... First of all, I always find it interesting to hear... Like I, and I think I, sometimes I try to break down songs uh, knowing as much as I do about music uh, technically, which is very little. Um, so I, I don't think it was very successful except for like, you know, some rock songs maybe. But um, so I sort of stuck with, and I don't think it's the best song in the world. If I said that, I take it back. I mean, it's my, it's, when I'm hearing it, it's my favorite song. And I don't wish to impose that on the world. Like, I don't I ever imagine that what I'm hearing is the best song. There's no such thing, right? It's not about connoisseurship for me, ultimately. Like, I, I'm, you know, I can be like that with other art forms, but I, I, as I get older, I find it m- more and more deceiving. And, I, and, I, and I, one thing I really enjoy about popular music is that it's pointless, that it's like everybody owns popular music. And that's why I love it. So, you're, you know, it, you know, aside from on the, in the schoolyard, maybe, you know, I, I like, you know, I'm a, I'm a rocker, I'm a mod, whatever kind of thing that we did. Like, it's a sort of, it seems sort of pointless. Um, so the, the, I, I believe the first version of the song I ever heard could have been the Ray Conniff singers. Cause, and, then, and then maybe it was the Osmonds. And I don't know that what, what impression they made on me, but when I bought, sometime in the early 90s, a Baccarat Greatest Hits, which kind of got me going for several decades, um, like I, I was already into it, but I didn't really know the scope. And then I heard this song, and I clearly had heard this song, but maybe I'd never heard this version. And so I was really just, just for the first note, taken with it. And you know, the, all I can really describe that as is there's a lot of songs that I guess are melancholy, and a lot of them are Bacharach, certainly Carpenter's songs and so forth, and people like Randy Newman and... Um, uh, David Ackles and so on that I'm really drawn to and 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 I think part of the reason for that is that if I'm just in that state where I'm not quite depressed and I connect to a song that's melancholy it sometimes pulls me out of it uh, or it lets me sit in it comfortably with with a partner for a while you mm-hmm. know like maybe I don't want to be pulled out of it I want to hang out in my melancholy that's what I love about this song. Although yeah. I have to, yeah. well, the thing is, right? I've ta- I've sp- talked about Backrack so much, and I actually <laughs> like to hear Kurt talk about Backrack because I he's he met Backrack first of all. I know that mm-hmm. Kevin told me, and also somebody said you're a Backrack expert, so watch <laughs> I said, out. I said that. Yeah. Watch out. But but the thing is, I've talked about Backrack so much, and I'm always a little ashamed that I don't mention how David. Right, I never talk about the lyrics, but really the lyrics, and this guy's in love with you. Yeah, the lyrics are, I think, what make the song more than the melody. And also, the thing that's interesting about the lyrics is, whereas most songs that sound like that, would I, I would think this guy's in love with you. Is he? Is she in love with him? No way. Like that's, but in this song. I I think maybe at the end of the song she will say I'm in love with you and he won't have to. maybe it's something if not I'll just die and she's gonna say don't worry dude I'm I love you too which is weird because ninety nine percent of love songs are 
unrequited love, and there's no like that. There's no no way. You know, the guy's embarrassing himself. He's saying he's in love, and she's going to be like, his hands are shaking. Is, yeah, but anyway, I'm just saying that. Anyway, I'm just saying we should talk more about his lyrics, which are sometimes, yeah, a house is not a home. That, like, when I was, like, uh, whatever, single for, tw tw what, what's the word I use? I can't remember. Invariably single or something. Constantly single. I, that, a, house, uh, a chair is still a chair, even when there's no one sitting there. But a, and a room is still a room, but a house is not a home. Like, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. Anyway. Well, you're always all about the lyrics, Alan. I'm not all about the lyrics. <laughs> That's the point. But it is funny that we are talking about songs. And, yeah, like when you get interviewed about songs or when people write reviews of songs, they always write about the lyrics. And they always say, oh, this is a really dark song. And I'll be like, really? That's a really bright song. And then they'll say, well, he's saying this. And I'm like, I didn't know he was saying that. But mm -hmm. one thing about the identifying Backrack just as Backrack is that he wrote with so many different people, and you know definitely the, the, there's that one streak with Hal David is incredible. But he, there's a lot of writers, uh, you know, uh, lyricists right. before and after. So mm -hmm. I think it's just just easy to say Backrack. Right. Uh, and then the other right, thing right. is I think is that Hal David lyrics could be in really bad songs that we would never be talking about. You know, th they could exist as as good lyrics on a bad song. Right. But it's just this magic, uh, you know, combination of great lyric and great, great song. And I think he wrote, like Bert would have the tune, and he would plug in words for the most part, which is really hard to do, because right? mm. you've already got the phrasing, mm. so you don't have the liberty to, to. And Bert is notoriously a stickler on things like phrasing and stuff. You can't. He doesn't let people mess around if he's in the room. Mm. The thing is. Also, why didn't Bert sing This Guy's In Love With You? Because it was perfectly for his range. There's actually an interest. I was looking for versions of A House Is Not A Home that I love, and I couldn't really. I always try to not hear the Dionne Warwick thing. Like, she's amazing, but I just don't want to hear that version. But on YouTube, there's one with, it must have been a TV special. He starts A House Is Not A Home. And then Dusty Springfield comes in, and it's really it's breathtaking. Mm. But still, well, you know, you've all heard Bert sing. Bert sang kind of like Herb, and maybe better, maybe I don't know. But he does sing it, doesn't he? I've I've, I've heard him sing Elfie a lot. That's but, amazing. Yeah. yeah. But doesn't he sing "This Guy's in Love with You"? Probably, I would hope so. I love his voice. It's so vulnerable and honest. And Kurt, would you consider yourself like a? uber back rack fan and well, how did that happen when i was a kid you know these songs were just exploding on radio and i, I was just drawn to the the his chords and the sound of his chords because he's you know uh absorbed impressionists and some pretty even avant-garde stuff right he studied with uh, henry cowell and uh who's kind of the, the heaviest avant-garde guy in the scene you know he was like, and he would go see John Cage and stuff. So, and then he's a big uh, jazz fan. Clearly, 
being a kid in New York, he would ab absorb doo-wop, you know, to make his, to bring the accessibility to his stuff, and uh, then absorbing all the, the bossa nova. So, like, to me, it was just this beautiful uh, combination of all these different streams, you know, and I just, I remember as a kid seeing, he'd have, he was on TV a lot at one point, right, when he's sort of started with this song, kind of really kick-started his identity as this like super handsome happening composer dude who'd give it get a tv special and i just thought this is like utopian music right like it just represented the the highest level of american culture to me <laughs> and uh and i just got into it when i started when i was teaching myself how to play guitar i i'd get books that had his songs in there so i'd um learn you know how to play these things as well and when I started playing live shows, I'd always do Bacharach. And uh, yeah, just, it's never, it's, it's one of those artists that has, has never gotten old for me or tired or I, I, every time I go back, I'm just kind of blown away. He is kind of in a weird, he is so much in a category of his own because also he was a giant in the 60s all through the Beatles and all that people of his generation and his music were falling to the wayside, but he was still there and writing songs for Dionne Warwick and still being cool, even though he was possibly from an other generation. He is kind of, and it's true. I mean, he was handsome and, okay, was he married to Angie Dickinson? Yeah, so there you go. Like He was like the ultimate bachelor bad kind of guy except he wasn't a bachelor but <laughs> but but that to me none of that like none of that explains how i can like enter a baccarat rabbit hole and then just you know like luxuriate in it for days on youtube and spotify and my own record collection i have one of them is not surprisingly, all Moog Bacharach. Right. And then there's this other switched record. Switched on Bacharach. Yeah, yeah right. switched yeah. on Bacharach because of Switch on Back. Bach. 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 I think that's how it For came sure. about. And then, but the other one is I have this one by Yuri Kritiak, who was, uh, uh, I think, Ukrainian guy who started Boot Records and started Stomp and Tom Connor's career. But he does an actually beautiful wordless vocal uh back or all back rack i'll show it to you later wow. like an album a whole album with an incredible cover that's why i brought it but he, he does not just the the uh, expected ones he does raindrops and all that but he does let me go to her he does paper mache nikki I, th I think he's on walking backwards down the road anyway those are gems yeah i got rid of about four or five hundred records in the last oh, few weeks, but not getting rid of those. <laughs> when I listen to him, I, 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 it's the romance in his music that I hear, like, and it doesn't feel false. It doesn't feel ersat, like ersat's romance, because so many of the records that came out in the '60s, uh, sort of romantic ballads that were going on at the same time as everything else that was going on in that decade. When I hear his music, and it, again, it may have something to do with his arrangements, I don't know. Um, 
but also in the in the line in the lines of his music. Uh, I hear real like romance. I, I I wish I could identify what I mean by romance, but it's just an emo deeply emotionally moving for me to listen to his a lot of his songs. Alfie is a hugely important song to me. I sing it all the time. It's like whenever like if I'm walking down the street by myself, I might just start singing it. Yeah. So What's and I'm trying to get all the words. It's a short like it's it's a short song really, but. There's always a little part of the song where I go, oh, I can't remember it. I can't remember it now. Can you sing a little for us? Alfie, right yeah. now? Mm -hmm. <laughs> no, because I don't, I, I'll, I'll hit that wall where I go, I don't know what comes next. I mean, I, what's I think what's it all about, Alfie? Is okay. it only the moments we live? I'm not singing very well today. What's it all about when you sort it out, sort it out Alfie? And now this next part is too hard for me to... Da 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 da. That's like incredible. And again, you read about the creation of the song, and you go, okay, so they didn't really want to write the song. Hal David didn't want to write the lyrics because they all thought the name Alfie was stupid. And then Scylla Black didn't want to record it. And then I read in Wikipedia today because I had to read up on it again. Scylla Black kept trying to give reasons not to record the song. She said something like, Alfie, something you name your dog. And, uh, but they sent the, the Bacharach was, uh, saw some of the film, I think. He saw a rough cut. Mm -hmm. And then to get Hal David to write the words, he sent the script to Hal David mm -hmm. because Hal David was going, Alfie, that's a dumb name. And so then the song is written and then, uh, I forget who he asked first, somebody uh, turned it down and then he, called Scylla, who had had hits with him before, and she said, eh. and, um, and then she said, okay, I'll do it, but, uh, but uh, Bert has to, uh, has to arrange the song, do the arrangement. So they said, yeah. And she said, okay, and, and he, has to, he has to come to England for the, the session. And they said, yeah. And they said, well, he has to, she was trying to get them to go, no, we're not gonna do it. And she, well, I'm not gonna do it. But they just kept saying yes. To the point where it's like, oh, well, he has to play on it. He has to play piano. Bert, Bert's willing to do that. And then there's that incredible footage on YouTube of them, not a lot of it, but of that recording session, which is really kind of cool. George Martin produced the, mm -hmm. produced the track. It was recorded at Abbey Road in Studio One, which I think is where the Beatles recorded. So, you know, everything about it is so, so 60s, but at the same time, it's like, it's, it's like uh, this guy's in love with you. It's like, do you have a song lying around? Yeah, I think I got some. Well, let me look. And it's that. And it's like a huge hit. Mm. It was number, uh, this guy's in love with you, the Herb Alpert version was number one in Canada. Mm. I think it was like one other country where it was number one, maybe the UK, I can't remember. Well, that, I, that, I, I like Roman hearing that nuts. about Alfie because, <laughs> again, I'm always thinking about here we are doing the thing about songs, but generally speaking, if somebody said, you know, tell me a record you love, I think about a record, a collection of songs, but actually songs, I know it seems weird for me to say, but songs are amazing, but songs are like little works of art in a way that a lot of records I have are kind of not because they have good songs and bad songs and all that. And yeah, he's, he says, what's it all about Alfie? because 
the movie's called Alfie, so he decided to put the name Alfie in the song, even though they didn't have to. Like, there's a lot of theme songs. But he put Alfie in the song, and then for the rest of your life, every time you're like, what the fuck's going on here? You hear, what's it all about, Alfie? Mm -hmm. Like, that's amazing. That's, uh, it is amazing. It's a permanent earworm, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think we should probably move to Kurt's song, but okay. I just feel compelled to say I'm the exact opposite of you on the the LP versus songs thing. Like, I love LPs. I love my records. Uh, I mostly think of them as great covers, like like, like visual covers. And, um, and it's just maybe when I grew up and how much money I had to buy records. Like, I bought, I bought a lot of 45s growing up with Chum and, uh, and then KTEL. Uh, and that kind of thing. Like, so it's all about songs to me. And um, I shouldn't say it's all about songs. Obviously, there's some albums. But these days, now those songs are all, are all because I listen to them on random. I make playlists, just like I used to make uh, mixtapes. Um, so maybe it's just always been that way with me. Like, I never really felt like I owned a record till I made a, pl- a, a mixtape with it and put it in my own kind of order. So it's like, yeah, music from Big Pink might be a great record, but I'm going to put this song next to Echo and the Bunny Men. <laughs> yeah. actually wrecking it, by the way. I mean, but, you know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think I'm both. Yeah. But I mean, the thing, yeah, the reason why I still have records is because if you say, well, you could play it on Spotify, I'll start to play it on Spotify and then I'll go, oh, wait, there's one over there. Oh, wait, there's one over there. I'll never. I'll never settle into yeah. anything. So I just, for me to like settle into something, I need to have a record. But mm-hmm. when I have the songs on my phone on shuffle in the car, it's like, yeah, it's it's a fucking feast. Like it's amazing. Mm-hmm. But but I just can't, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I can't. I can't go there permanently mm-hmm. because otherwise I'll just never like never get any writing done i'll never get anything done because i'll be oh oh there's a scroll you know like maybe i have yeah. kind of adhd so yeah but often i get rid of a record and somebody's like I, I always think of the same record which is very obscure but the first electric prunes record as i had too much to dream last night and when i sell that record people, how can you sell that record and it's like because there's five sort of crappy Winchester Cathedral things. Why the fuck was this <laughs> psychedelic band doing these Vodio Do songs? And when they go on, I want to, you know, even like whatever. I can't listen to Revolver because of Yellow Submarine. Like, fuck, why did they have to ruin the record with that song? <laughs> Which my gr- daughter from the other room says, Daddy, I like this song. And it's like, yeah the worst song on the record. Anyway, I'm just saying. I can't keep a record if it has one song I like. I wish I'd just stayed 45s, but I didn't. So, yeah. Anyway, that's my little rant. Anyway, about it's all music. Yeah. I just I'd put it in. So, um, I, why don't we play One Note Samba? Okay, so yeah, this is uh, One Note Samba by Jobim, uh, performed by Frank Sinatra. And the... Uh, Sort of a, a coincidence is that um, this uh, it's on an album called F- Sinatra and Company, which also includes a Bacharach cover. And the album was initially going to be the follow-up to that great album that he did with Jobim. Uh, and so they, that was a big success. And uh, they started another album. And Frank apparently didn't dig the whole, entire thing and made the record company remove three songs 
and then they recorded some more and that included this the Bacharach tune close to you um, but I chose this because I, there I see a similarity or possible influence uh, in this choosing having one note you know kind of relentlessly go through it and Joe Beams is more of a, a concept where he's, he takes it as far as you can possibly go before he breaks off into a, a, a melody but it's kind of funny to hear Frank do it because he's got so much swagger and he's, he's to me he sounds a little bit like a tourist in in uh, South America but um, it's it's a charming version right and this is uh, one note samba by uh, Joe Beam sung by Frank Sinatra this is just a little samba built upon a single note other notes are bound to follow but the root is still that note now this new one is the consequence of the one we've just been through as i'm bound to be the unavoidable consequence of you there's so many people who can talk and talk and talk and just say nothing or nearly nothing i have used up all the scale i know and at the end i've come to nothing or nearly nothing so I come back to my first note As I must come back to you I will pour into that one note All the love I feel for you Anyone who wants the whole show Remy Faso, La Cito, He will find himself with no show Better play the note you know should say that the arrangements by Dio Dato. Yeah, that's neat, eh? Previous podcast, I brought it yeah. up. I can't. Joe we'll, came up. And we talked about him. Yeah. Well, because we. I chose. I chose. You oh, talked. I chose it, you but you. I chose Agua de Marcos, but you talked about it for half an hour because you loved it, and I didn't have anything else to say because when I picked it, I didn't even know it was a Jobim song. I was just a song that Art Garfunkel sang at the end of uh, the worst person in the world. He will find himself with no show. Better play the notes you know. I grew up hating Sinatra because he was the head of the committee to hate rock and roll and make fun of long hair and tell people that those kids are horrible. And I just had to hate him. Yeah. And I basically hated him all until I heard Watertown, right. which is a record he made in the 70s. And then I went back a little bit and I have, like, the one he made with Rod McEwen, I have Cycles, and even that one, Sinatra and Co., which I call it Sinatra and Co., because it doesn't say company. And, yeah, and he does Agua de Bebe, and, but at least on that one. And it is funny to hear him and Joe Beam sing opposite each other, because Joe Beam, Agua de Bebe, and then, <laughs> and then Frank, Agua de, you know, like, yeah. is, but anyway. That it was funny, my relationship with Frank Sinatra, 
at the beginning I loved him because my, he was my father's favorite singer mm. and I, I loved him and I loved the films and stuff and everything about oh, yeah, him. Oh, I liked your films. And then, sort of when the 60s got hot and heavy, I went right off him. I just went, ah, he's an asshole. You know, look at him with his turtleneck shirt trying to be cool and all this stuff. This is like, I don't know how old I would have been, maybe 12. And I'm just going, ah, screw Frank. And then um, he retired. And then he came back and he did uh, Old Blue Eyes is back. And I bought that for my dad as a Christmas gift. And of course, so I heard it. And I heard his version of Send in the Clowns, the Sondheim number, and some of the other songs on it. And I, uh, I, and then I went right, I, I loved that album and I liked him again. And then I went right off him because he was like a Republican and it was all about Nixon and stuff for me. And I just, hated uh, the whole Rat Pack. I just dismissed them all. And then I was in a store and I saw Watertown and I went, what the hell is this? I've never seen this record before. It was a used copy. And I said, oh, it's got sort of the, it's on reprise and it's got the rough thing like Harvest, you know, that kind yeah. of rough cover. So I bought it and I took it back and I said, oh, it's a concept album. Oh, one of the Four Seasons is involved in it. Oh my God, this, I don't, this is a great album. You know, and I gave it to my father, of course. But I got, I, you know, after he passed away, I got all of his, his Frank, except Sinatra at the Sands. But, um, yeah, but the one that really did it for me, the one that cemented it for me was I picked up, used again, the Joe Beam album. And I played that album and I went, well, this, this guy is, you know, supreme, like he's the best. When he says something like, I'm the consequence of you, <laughs> it's kind of amazing because he... You know, he takes it yeah. somewhere else. Like, yeah, yeah that's brilliant. And it he, he just, wow, he's... I love he's, the way he plays with, like, uh, the, 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 the samba. The, uh, his phrasing, as always, is, like, exquisite. So, but listening to him do his patented Sinatra phrasing over that kind of a beat, that kind of a tempo, is like, it's just like he's so... And, and the way he punches little things and closes it up, like he'll say note, like he'll hit the T in note, whereas mm -hmm. someone else would have just sort of let it fly, you know. Right. So he adds a little of his own percussiveness in the lyric to the percussiveness of the song. It's just exquisite listening to him do that. That's why I love that record so much. I don't think I've ever hated Sinatra. Um, but maybe because my father hated Sinatra, I did think. He? But did he? Um, so we just didn't really have Sinatra in the household. Um, although one record showed up, uh, I don't know, you know, it was a very good year or September of my years. I don't even know if it was like original or it was just a packaged, you know, re-release. And then um, I kind of got into, like I got into him because of, of a Scott Walker. It was really like hearing uh, Fire Escape in the Sky. It was like this. It was like, you know, the experience some people have taking acid or whatever. Like I, a friend of mine gave me that record because she assumed I'd be into it because I was into Julian Cope. And then he, you know, he, he put it together. And I didn't know who Scott Walker was. I didn't know who the Walker brothers were. I was like 17 or 18. Played that record and it was just like cleared out my mind. And I, and I was like, if I like this, Maybe I'll like Sinatra, you know, and then I did, and then um, that's the weirdest. Leap. But there was that weird trilogy record uh, 
yeah. came out and uh, my sister had it. And so there was like suddenly some Sinatra interest in the household. And I took my parents to see Sinatra at the CNE. And it was among the worst shows I've ever been to. And it was really unfortunate because for my dad, that was like, well, you know, live shows. I remember when we were at Sinatra and the, you know, it was like, it was like, it was like five seconds long and then it was canceled, but no one ever got their money back in those days. But then tickets were like, you know, seven bucks or something. So, uh, but it was raining and they didn't really have any provision for that. Right. And he was just terrible though. And then, but I never hated him. And then, you know, eventually it was just like, oh, Sinatra, Sinatra. And then I got to the point where when I was doing a thousand songs, there was a lot of Sinatra there um, because I really love, I really love him. I, I mean, was he a Republican? I don't know. He also sang for JFK, right? Yep. So I don't know. He um, was definitely a Democrat at one point. Yep. Actually, today on YouTube, I'm going to send it to you later. Somehow it just didn't, came up, this speech he made at the Oscars. And basically, it was like, before I announce the award, I'm just going to say something about movies. And then he said, um, he said, people say, what's wrong with movies? And it's like, I'll tell you what's wrong. It's because they're not made by picture makers. They should make them like Mona Lisa, a picture by one person, not by a committee or accountants or something like that. He said Mona Lisa. And then he, he and it was... Like, oh my God, so I, he took the words right out of so many of our mouths. He was actually kind of, you know, recommending auteurship. And Clearly was a like Brackish that. fan. And, and he, and I do remember, he was brilliant. Like, as I loved him as an actor. I always yeah. remember my father made, you know, one of those times where like, you're going to go to bed at 8 o'clock and then I'm going to wake you up at 11 and we're going to watch a movie that you have to see, and then we watched Manchurian Candidate, mm-hmm. and you know, I mean, Frank was amazing. Obviously, from here to eternity, too. Like as an actor, I loved him. I just as yeah, yeah, as a as a showbiz presence, I didn't like him. I guess I had to split myself. It's funny you mentioned Scott Walker, though, because when I was, you know, sort of pre disappearing down a back rack hole before we did this I was like looking for um, you know cover versions and there's not that many cover versions of any day now but there is one by Scott Walker and so when I put it up on YouTube there were comments and basically all the comments were uh, you know basically they're kind of like Scott Walker fans and they think when Scott Walker does a normal pop song he's not being true to himself and they're making these comments about how like oh he just threw that one away and I'm like wanting to answer except I see 13 years ago 10 years ago okay I'm not gonna answer the guy who made a comment 13 (laughs) years ago but uh, yeah I mean Scott Walker did um, Do I Love You the Paul Anka song and I whatever I, I accept that Scott Walker did not throw anything away if he did it he loved that song just as much as he loved but he you know, made it like, difficult because he then rejected all of that, right? Which doesn't it doesn't change my opinion. I love all that stuff. I had all those records. I have some version of them now um, on some hard drive, I'm sure. But um, 
but he he dismissed like practically right. everything he did until except for like when he started doing like tilt and things like that. He, tilt is the beginning, yeah. like, and then he gets that's like yeah, I know. get it. And it's whatever he had to, but that's what artists do. That I've no like, I don't really take that. It's not that I don't take it seriously. Doesn't make I don't, me not like it. Exactly. It doesn't, doesn't I don't care. I will say for people in the in the sort of like if you're listening to if anybody listens to this and then they're like, oh, I should look up. Scott Walker, oh, I should look up this. I'm going to give him one more thing to look up, which is me and Scott when we were in our crazy Scott Walker phase. We discovered this movie, this record by Jack Jones. Jack Jones sings Michelle Legrand, and we had a little game like we're going to play this and we're going to tell you Scott Walker. And how long before? Because I think Scott Walker got tons from Jack Jones. I think they're really similar. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's that's on record because he. When he was in L.A. before he went to England, he would see Jack Jones perform. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. He's a big fan of Jack. Yeah, Jones? he's he's said that yeah. before. Yeah. Well, wow. that jo Jack Jones sings Michelle Legrand. I mean, it's a great record. You can still buy it on CD, and it's very Scott Walker like. I, I would think that you know Frank's in the wee small hours. That album, that period, would be a big uh, source for for Scott. Yeah. Right? Yeah. With the orchestration. And yeah, I never saw any reference to it, but for sure, like I, and um, that, I think I when I reviewed that or, you know, one of the songs from that, I probably also said, this is the best song in the world. So, <laughs> <laughs> so that's where I like to be, in that, that zone, apparently. Okay, should we seamlessly move to Rick? Rick's choice? I chose uh, a song by the Young Rascals, because uh, the song was important to me when I was a kid, uh, and I didn't know it was the Young Rascals, uh, you know, in 1967. It was a song on the radio. In fact, for a number of years, I thought that the song was from the musical Hair. Because Hair, uh, uh, How Can I Be Sure is the name of the song. Um, it's on Groovin'. Yeah. Um, and so it's so unrascals like to to my ears that it, it it but but it does sound like it's from hair, like when I listened to it I, uh, on the radio I went oh well, this was this is probably from hair too because when I heard it I was just picturing this hippie going like what's you know right how what? can I be sure with all that's going on in the world right? what's with you and how can I be sure what's it all about Alfie yeah that, yeah there's... all of that kind of yeah 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 what's with me. Uh, so it gives us uh, the Young Rascals, How Can I Be Sure, 1967. How can I be sure in a world that's constantly changing? How can I be sure where I stand with you? Whenever I'm away from you, 
my alibi is telling people I don't care for you. Maybe I'm just hanging around with my head up, upside down. It's a pity I can't seem to find someone who's as pretty. chose it for this particular podcast was because it also reminds me of Burt Bacharach and the way that the melody leaps and uh, goes to unexpected places. behind, uh, what's his name, Eddie Bergatti, is Eddie that his Bergatti, name? Yeah. He co-wrote the song with Felix? Gene, Felix? Oh, did he? Because he also wrote with Gene Cornish, I think but that, I don't know. I think that Felix takes a little bit more credit for the song than he should, but I, I don't know enough about right. the Young Rascals to know if that's true, but uh, it's a Bergatti vocal. And, and Eddie Bugatti didn't play an instrument. No, he played tambourine. It's nice to hear that song again. Great voice. Uh, great singing voice. Actually, his voice singing voice reminds me a bit of Marty Ballant of the Jefferson Airplane. Um, um, yeah, the, the, the one thing that it reminds me of is, well, first of all, just about how in the 60s, rock bands would have these ballads that didn't sound any like, how can a rock band be? Playing something so lush like that, but but uh, yeah, the, the Rascals were young Rascals at that time were a strange band for sure. Like mm. like they didn't have a bass player, and uh, and they had a I thought like they had a really good drummer who was kind of showy, and then Felix. You would think Felix Cavallari was the lead singer because he had he sang on Good Lovin', which was their big hit and all mm. that, but. But Eddie Brigatti, like I, you know, they were friends from Long Island, and Eddie had a good voice, and he was in the band, and it just that song reminds me. I have their first record, and he does um, um, this song called "I Believe." You know, the song. I don't think they wrote it. It's like I a, believe. If I believe. Yeah, for, yeah, and that's not it. the Buzzcocks version. Right? <laughs> no, I believe. No, and, and it's very similar. Yeah. Very similar to uh, how can I be sure? Very. Yeah. I I don't know for a fact that Felix was the R and B singer and Eddie was the, you know, a sort of Italian ballad singer. But maybe he yeah. was, and and yeah, he, they both had great voices. I mean, basically, he did eventually quit, and it became basically like Felix Cavallari's band. And then whatever he went on to make these weird, you know, jazz records with Alice Coltrane on them under the name the rascals but hmm. but uh wow. yeah I, I loved them and i and I, I whatever i watched this on ed sullivan it was weird because 
I think he was lip syncing, but I couldn't tell for sure. So anyway, yeah, that's a that's a great song. And uh, you know what it reminded me of? My 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 second least favorite backrack song. Uh, what's new, Pussycat? Oh, this that, reminds you of what's new, Pussycat? Yeah. Oh, fuck, I don't know how you got that. Well, <laughs> if you played the song again, there's a part. Oh, okay. Oh, it's a. This the the thing about this song is that there's so much going on in it in terms of musical influence. It's just like crazy. Like when I was, um, the song was going through my head for weeks uh, before I just went, uh, you know played it on Spotify so I could cure it. But while I was at work and stuff, I would like it would come into my head, which happens with songs every once in a while. And then it just it just it's just insistent. And then finally I go, okay, okay, I'll play it. And uh, and uh, but now when I listen to it, I hear like uh, it's got a little French chanson in it. It's got uh, they get the soul fit when he goes, I really, really, really want to know. All of a sudden, there's the the kind of the oh that's the rascals the, like that kind of R and B thing that they have had going, and uh, and you know when I heard Groovin the song back in the day when I was a kid I thought they were a black group, you know I didn't know they were white. That's what that's what one that's what you know, a lot of people kind of like say Spencer from Davis, from know. Good Lovin' or the the uh, the song that Miami Steve talks about is the first time you heard I ain't gonna eat up my heart anymore and yeah. how sexy it was and yeah yeah they were they were but, but I also it, hear like I hear uh Broadway yeah. you know like it sounds like it's from the song like I thought it was from hair when I was a kid so right. it's like there's a kind of a Broadway feel to it because it's so expansive melodically it's not like tight like a lot of uh band pop hits were it's a little more ambitious that's why it's like very I, ambitious like uh Cavallari talks about how they never would have uh, done this song if it if they hadn't heard Mich if the Beatles hadn't done Michelle and Yesterday they right. never would have had the guts to to go oh we're going to do this and we're going to put it out as a single but uh, when I'm listening to this song I go melodically I mean McCartney yes he does a lot of melodic leaping uh, which is one of the reasons I love him so much but this song is much more ambitious than either Michelle or Yesterday. It's just like this big number, you know? You could, you know you could feel like it coming at the end of Act One in some Broadway show, you know, like the one of the protagonists would be singing it, you know? And it's just like, a, it's a gift to a singer. And again, it's very backrack. Like I can picture Scylla Black or, or any, of the, uh, any of the backrack singers doing this number, you know, especially the ones that had the big, so, um, would your father have thought he had a good voice? Yeah, he would have liked, yeah. You know what it reminds me of? That's the thing was with my father was kind of like, they don't have good voices. And finally, yeah. I mean, I reached a point where I can very clearly say that some of my favorite singers are not good singers. Like, mm. they're n But the reason I'm thinking about this is because I heard, I think it was on the Rick Rubin show or something, he podcast he was interviewing um Robbie Krieger and John Densmore or something I think that's where I heard it and uh they were saying that Jim Morrison loved Sinatra and that when he went into the studio he saw that mic from one of those Sinatra records and then also it made me somebody was saying like 
when they first heard Morrison sing just like without a band, he was a crooner. That's what he sounded like. And, mm-hmm. and, and it's sort of funny. Like, it just reminds me of all this when I growing up, like with fighting, even though I didn't care if somebody didn't have a great voice. I didn't, you know, I still like, you know, I'll just say, like when somebody says, oh, I can't listen to Dylan or Leonard Cohen because I don't like their voices, I literally want to like, you'll kill yourself. Like that's, you should be exiled from the family of man. But having said that, I'm just saying often because I would know my father might go, that guy has a lousy voice. Every time I'd hear somebody, dad, what about, come on, this guy, he he can sing. And yeah, I wonder if he would have thought Eddie Brigatti was a good singer. Yeah, I wonder the same thing. Well, it's definitely, you know, it's a live track, right? Like there's no punch-ins probably. There's no auto-tune, that's for sure. So it's it's pretty revealing when you hear these tracks from the 60s that those were great singers. To be able to cut that live, you know, and not futz around with it too much. Yeah. So you met Bert Bacharach. Yeah. I've, I've met him, well, three times. Twice was just being a fan and lining up at the uh, by the limo to, to get his autograph. Mm-hmm. But one time, uh, he was in town... Well, a couple of days prior, uh, a friend and I drove out to Ottawa to see him gig at the National with the full uh, symphony there, and mind-blowing show, and really beautiful, and I did the limo thing, you know, and uh, shook his hand or whatever, and then a couple of days later, well, that that was just two days after 9-11, and so all the flights were messed up, and uh, he couldn't get a flight home, so he... He was sort of. He went to Toronto, and uh, I guess he he called Mike Myers, who he befriended, and said, "I'm stuck in your your hometown. What do I do? What, you know, yeah. I don't don't know anybody here." And he Mike said, "Well, I'm going to put something together. I know some people are dying to meet you." So I got a call, and there's just like five people who are rabid Burt fans, and uh, I had a gig that night at the Cameron, and I had my guitar with me, but I raced over to have a drink with Bert. It was at some swanky joint in Yorkville. And um, and so I and I got to sit right beside him, huh. and uh, and I had my guitar, so I, I, my guitar at that time had a little picture of Bert on the headstock, and it had his name, and with a gold crown. And when he saw that, he kind of really was, you know, charmed. And so he signed my guitar, which is, is beautiful. He says, like, you know, my best to you always or whatever. And <laughs> and, uh, but it was an incredible experience because he's kind of, you know, my favorite songwriter and has been pretty much all my life. And uh, it was a very moving experience. And he had some, some great stories. And he's not at all modest or anything. And, you know, you hope he wouldn't be modest. He's just mm-hmm. like, he's so confident in what he's done and, he was great, and uh, but he, you know he, he's an older dude, and he he, he kind of had to leave a little early, and but we, so he got up and left, and uh, when he got up, I th- I just impulsively sat down on a, the chair he's sitting and absorbed his body, <laughs> and he had a, a little wine left in his glass, and I just it's like communion or something, yeah, yeah. Some experience like that, and then when I I went home and I just wept, I was so overcome with meeting my hero and, and uh, you know, so, sort of like a, a dream come true. And then the best part was Mike uh, picked up the tab uh, 
from from Los Angeles. He paid for the whole deal, so that was sweet. <laughs> so I have to say, the the bad part of, about this is Kurt's our first guest, and it's going to be all downhill from here. Like nobody <laughs> nobody's going to top that. Like oh my god, it just uh, it's funny. I know that Kurt met Bert because our mutual friend said to me. Do you want to make a doc about him? And I was like, well, of course I do, but I don't think. There's a reason. There's a reason there's no Burt Backrack doc. There must be a reason that he doesn't want it. Otherwise, there could be one. Yeah. In the Thousand Songs um, entry, uh, Rick's brother Steve talks about a Burt Backrack doc that he heard, saw, but it must have been a BBC one. They used to do those ones that were just for the BBC Mm-hmm. So maybe there is one from 30 years ago, but yeah, Bert, Bert, if you know, if Doug and the Slugs, no offense, has a music doc which they do, then 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 Bert Backrack deserves one. Absolutely. And but but I don't think, I don't think I I just think now he's probably too old to want to to want to do it. Although I guess you could do it from archival footage, like- and that would be a, a privilege. But I won't. It won't be my privilege. I'm just curious. Did you like the record he did with Elvis Costello? Oh yeah, I yeah. love it. Yeah. yeah, I've got the music book for that too because it's so complicated. The songs you, you need the charts to play them. Yeah. But yeah, I, I dig it a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And do you do it? Somebody say you do a back rack night. You do? Um. Yeah. My partner Lori Cullen and I uh, did a, a back rack tribute. She said, "Well, you know, you got you should do one." But I, I'm not a big fan of those type of events and classic albums live and all that stuff but it sort of to me signifies a, you know dead culture and, and people are going out to see these yeah. things you know but I I thought well yeah maybe we should do it and we, we did it uh, every year at Hughes Room which was kind of like the Caesars Palace of Roncesville right like beautiful different tiers of seating it was a and gorgeous place yeah it was, it was great and people listened there that was the, the best part um, and we would have like five guests in a house band and Colleen uh, Allen would be, you know, playing. Like we had a really nice band. I'd be on guitar and MC the thing. And uh, yeah, we did it every year. It was a total blast. We'd always sell out. And we were very, pretty faithful to the originals, you know, try to be very respectful and not go too far outside with the stuff. And yeah, it was, it was a blast. But then Hughes uh, is... It's kind of no more at this point. They're just—it's moving to this neighborhood. Well, that's yeah, that's very much up in the air from from what I've heard. But yeah, first get a million dollars. Yeah, I I wanted to say this, but I wanted to bring a little bit of bi- the biographical elements into this that okay. was, used to be in, uh, in in Thousand Songs. In that, um, I I tried to go. Well, what what is it this time? I thought, well, what is it about Backrack, like certain songs by Backrack, this song by the Young Rascals, what is it that appeals to me? And what you were saying about melancholy, absolutely, I completely agree with that and I identify with that. But I was trying to get to the root of it. What is it, what, what is it that makes me, you know, first of all, what is it that made me in my life get involved in relationships with that largely ended badly because there was an unrequited element that sort of like a virus comes into it. And, uh, and I try, and then I'm trying to go back when I was like a kid, when I was like eight or seven, even maybe even younger. 
they used to show old American musicals on television. I guess they weren't so old at that point. But uh, MGM musicals and stuff, they just used to be on, on the weekends. And I used to watch them all. And there was always some kind of romantic element in them. And usually things got really bad. And then they got great. And then there would be these movies, like that one with Sinatra. Uh, I think it's called Young at Heart, the one where he's driving in the car and he lets, turns the windshield wipers off in the snow. And I was drawn to all of this. And I'm going, well, what, what is going on? Like, what is it? How, how am I being drawn musically and cinematically to this kind of, I wouldn't say negative, but this kind of romance that's uh, somehow scuppered and, and heartbreaking and puts you in that mood all the time. And I think it might have had something to do with the fact that my oldest sister died when I was very, very young, and that the aftermath of that was that there was nobody really looking after me at that point because uh, my sister, my older sister, um, there was two sisters, um, I said, so what was going on? I, I, this is recent, because uh, my brother came over to actually research the passing of my older sister to find out what happened, because she died of hepatitis, and um, he, he wanted to find out what was going on. And so at one point, I said to my sister, "So." Who was looking after me? Well, my mom, my mom was devastated, and it said that that's what triggered her bipolar. Uh, like, and Dad was at work. I said, "Who was looking after me?" And Jane said, "I, I don't know, because I was with uh, Chris. Retreated to his friends. I retreated to my friends. She would have been about twelve. And so I'm going so." Nobody remembers who was looking after me. So that must have been an interesting time. I would have been about two, three years old, two, two years old. And nobody can say, yeah, yeah, mom was right there or no, you know. It said occasionally dad would take you for a walk around the neighborhood. And that's all I got. So I'm thinking there was some abandonment issues there. Plus I'm watching television. I'm watching these movies, these old movies with these old values. A lot of unrequited love, a lot of romance, a lot of, a lot of boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl. And then I'm listening to a lot of uh, my parents' music, which was Sinatra and all of those, you know, great singers. And then the 60s happens, but then the ballads are kind of the same. It's always when it's not about, you know, give it to the man, which was later in the 60s. It was still love songs. It was still a lot of it was unrequited love. And I identified with all of that stuff. And so I identified with Backrack lyrics, with the Hal David lyrics and those string of hits. And, and something, it's something deep inside of me responded to that stuff. Can you go back to the part where you were saying who was taking care of me? Because I didn't want to ruin it when you were doing it, but now I'm going to ruin it. So. Can you just repeat that dialogue like? When I asked my sister. Yeah. Who was taking care of I asked my sister who was looking after me during that, how in the can, wake of the death of my older sister. How can I be sure <laughs> in a world that's constantly changing? <laughs> yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, okay. I, have, I could make this go on for half an hour but if I, just I thought respond I'd throw that in there. to what you just said. No, no. Yeah. You know. Yeah, no, I, I just, it's like... It's something that I would have said 
you know, had I known this when we were doing a thousand songs on Facebook, I would have brought you. Yeah. Dion has complained that she never had a song to sing that was happy from him. That was one yeah. of her big complaints, right? All the songs were she'd lost the the love interest and. But you know, I mean, again, uh, this is. Is there any happy art? Is there any happy art? No, no, no. I mean, I'm. I I only bring it up because I'm. Some I'm announcing to. This. I'm announcing to you as my friends that I. I put my name into the lottery for a fringe show this summer, and uh, but part of it is like when I say what it's about, which is about the 30 years of, I say failure, but some people say struggle, that preceded my finally getting something going. And then people ask, well, you know, you've succeeded for the last 20 years. Like, why don't you do a show about that? And it's like, come on, like, or, yeah, I'm happy. I'm, like, I'm not going to make a show about when I was happy. Like, that's ridiculous. So anyway. No, we die at the end. So it's not, I mean, I'm, I'm not... It's, but it's true. Like, there's very few. There are comedies, but usually, the, usually the great comedies are black. Uh, stand-up comedy, of course, is not happy. You know, um, Shakespeare is not happy, even when it appears to be happy. Uh, even musicals, as you kind of pointed out, uh, the ones that are happy are shit. You know, so it's like generally, we need well, to deal. To differ, but the, you know, but there you know will the, be other episodes. The, the thing is, <laughs> thing is, I. I said, let's not make a meal of it. But the truth is, though, a lot of songs seem happy when they're not. That's what I like. Right. A lot of songs, you don't hear the lyrics enough or you don't even think what the lyrics mean. Somebody almost has to make you think about it. Often the melodies, you know, do you know the way that San Jose is probably about a guy who's failed in Hollywood and he's going back home. But you don't know that when you're 12 years old and you hear this song and it's a bright melody. So, you know, there are, that's what's amazing about this music is that all the lyrics are sad, but the music isn't always right. sad. But on, uh, uh, I was thinking, thinking of the rasc ra Young Rascals, it's like, I always love Good Lovin'. I just love the chords. Yeah. Uh, but it's a pretty vacuous song uh, as opposed to the song we talked about today, which I kind of, which, by the way, reminds me of, even though this is kind of a non sequitur, but it reminds me of the later uh, Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons songs, like Baggin' and Can't Take Good My Good Lovin' Does? Uh, no, no, no. Um, the How, yeah. How, can, I, How can, can I Be Sure? sure. Yeah. Just because they're kind of ambitious and a little bit fucked up. And, you know, like they're like, there's just something like not, you know, it's just someone going, I got to do this thing now, which is not at all like Good Lovin' or not at all mm. like, you know early Frankie Valley in the Four Seasons. So uh, uh, thanks, Kurt, for uh, joining us today. And uh, this has been another uh, episode of Thousand Songs. Join us again next time when we will be discussing songs. What's it all about, Alfie? Is it just for the moment we live? What's it all about? In this episode, Rick Campbell, Jim Shedden, Alan Zwag, and special guest Kurt Swinghammer discuss the music of Burt Bacharach and songs including 
This Guy's in Love with You, recorded by Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass. One Note Samba, composed by Antonio Carlos Obim and performed by Frank Sinatra. How Can I Be Sure, written by Felix Cavaliere and Eddie Brigatti, recorded by The Young Rascals. And the closing track for this episode is Alfie, written by Burt Bacharach and Hal David, performed by Scylla Black, recorded in the autumn of Thousand Songs podcast on Facebook and Instagram, and stay tuned for our next episode, released in the third week of every month.